cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. We have a very special guest. Uh, it's really kind of a fascinating um, individual in that I know of no other person who is responsible for more assets, no other woman who is higher ranking in the world of finance, and yet at the same time, is not only unknown to the investing public in general, is probably fairly unknown within the world of uh, financial asset management, meaning people who work in finance probably haven't heard of her as much as they've heard of some some more famous uh, money managers. Everybody knows who Jamie Dimon is. He's the CEO of JP Morgan. But how many people know who the Chief Executive Officer, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Private Bank is. They manage $650 billion. They're a huge, huge player in the world of asset management. And I bet most of you don't know who Kelly Coffey is. Well, we spent a delightful hour and change chatting about what it's like being a woman on Wall Street, what it was like being at a big bank in the midst of the financial crisis, and what exactly the CEO of J.P. Morgan Private Bank actually does. Uh, I found the conversation really quite fascinating, and I expect you will also. So without any further ado, my conversation with Kelly Coffey. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest this week is Kelly Coffey. She might be the most influential woman in finance who you've never heard of. She is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Private Bank, which manages over $650 billion in client assets. Her background, uh, she has a bachelor's in international affairs and French at Lafayette College, a master's in foreign service at Georgetown University. She's a member of the Global Wealth Management Operating Committee at J.P. Morgan and also executive sponsor for the Asset Management Women's Network, Kelly Coffey. Welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So you have a really interesting background starting. Uh, you've been at J.P. Morgan for quite a while. You've worked your way through a number of departments. But before we get to life at J.P. Morgan, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get into the financial services industry with a background in French and, and foreign service? Well, I think I'm an accidental entrance into this into this career. My undergrad degree, as you said, and my graduate degree is in international affairs. I wanted to study the world and how, how it worked. And that was always fi fa fascinating to me. My other choice for my undergraduate major would have been math. Mm -hmm. But 
at 18 years old, I couldn't figure what I would have done with a math degree. So I just studied that. You, Who you needs know? math anyway? Who needs math, it's right? Um, and so when I was coming out of Georgetown, I uh, I had a decision to make. I could have been, interestingly, an observer at the 1992 uh, European Un- Integration Talks. Huh, this was that's pre- interesting. Uh, pre the the euro and all of the things that we're talking about, uh, will it become dismantled today? And uh, you missed the birth. You could go to the funeral. I could go to the funeral. <laughs> Let's hope not. We're at that. <laughs> we don't go to that funeral. But uh, or go go to Wall Street. And I thought since I didn't do an MBA that I should get just some grounding in finance. So I went to J.P. Morgan because they had a great training program. Mm-hmm. I met some fantastic people, and I would do it for a couple years. And that was 20 25 years, years ago, ago, probably. And now you're running the private bank. Yeah. So you were in a number of different departments. You yes. kind of worked your way through. Tell us about the different divisions that you either worked at or ran. I started in corporate finance and M&A mm-hmm. uh, because I, it was it was what I knew. And I thought that would be uh, the best part. It was it was a fantastic place for me. I loved building models. And pretty quickly uh, in that, I was asked to move to Argentina mm-hmm. for us when Argentina was privatizing its industry. So we actually, hopefully we're going into that kind of phase of Argentina today with Macri. They but do this I, every 20, 30 every couple years of, or so, every, right? every cycle they Listen, do this. Listen, we've seen the same thing in Brazil and Mexico. <laughs> every right. few years is a big regime change. So I went I went there when Menem was president. Cavallo was the finance minister who was a rock star in my eyes. And they had put in place something called convertibility. They pegged peso to the dollar, one for one. Right. And then we were helping with the privatization program. So J.P. Morgan together with the French and the Italian and a local company called Perez Compunc, bought the phone company in the north of Argentina. And we financed it, and then we ultimately took it public. But I, I was pulled down there to work on that, and I stayed for about five years, and I so loved it. So all these were government-owned entities, they were, which were in the process, they were, they were spinning out. They privatized it, then you helped take it public. Did the international affairs, French, and everything else help with that? It helped. I mean, of course, now I'm fluent in Spanish. I Mm -hmm. spoke French when I went there. But it it did. I I think my undergraduate degree and my graduate degree particular in international affairs from Georgetown, it taught you how to take really complicated things and distill them down to the essence. And there's an analytical part of that. It's not Mm -hmm. not all of that is numbers. And I think it did help me, particularly when we were negotiating and you had the French, the Italians, the Argentine and the Americans, us, trying to agree on something in a consortium uh, as joint owners, yeah, I think it served me well in some of those meetings. Everybody speak English, I'm assuming, in those meetings? Everybody spoke English in those meetings. Of course, I became fluent in Spanish, but yeah, we, you know, a lot of those, a lot of that business is done in English. Uh, and it was interesting, even though, and even in Argentina, our English, we would have held the meetings in Spanish verbally, mm-hmm. but all of our presentation materials were in English. Might That's have just been because we were in a, an American bank. How, how long were you down in Argentina? For? Uh, about five years. Right. It's really lovely part of the world. Isn't it? It's beautiful. So, and you, I hope it becomes really prosperous now with the. They they have what a doing lot today. of tremendous resources and raw materials and commodities. It just seems that every few years they seem to slip off the tracks, yeah. and it takes a long time to get back on on pace. And hopefully, and, this will work. Uh, they're also slaves to the commodity market. You have a huge run-up caused by China, mm-hmm. and then the run back down, and suddenly they're out over their skis. And yeah. it seems this nobody seems to learn from the cycle. Hey, commodities are booming. Let let's you know build this, sell that, and all of a sudden it goes the other way. And what a surprise! Yeah, I think Argentina they do have enough of a of a market internally, and and if the government does this right, I think it can work beyond that. So, so let's bring you back to uh, New York and the private bank. Yes. What's the difference between the private bank and a regular bank? The private bank is actually a microcosm of the entire mm-hmm. firm because when you think about who we do business with, it's 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 
extremely wealthy clients who probably they might be business owners, they might be entrepreneurs, uh, a number of different ways they got there. And they need us for banking. Mm -hmm. They need us for credit. They need us for investment advice. They also need us to help sell their businesses sometimes, help them think about IPO. So there's not a part of JP Morgan that my business doesn't plug into to make sure I'm getting the best of JP Morgan for each of those clients. So it is really like a bank. We it's have just deposits. geared for very high net worth individuals. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, J.P. Morgan serves the whole spectrum, right? right between Chase and we, we, we coordinate very closely uh, with that. And and the idea is to basically say, this is the client, this is what they need, which is not only delineated by their balance sheet, by the way, mm-hmm. as you know, very. It's it's really what what do they what do they need advice on, and then let's make sure we're getting that right advice to them the way they want it. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Kelly Coffey. She is the CEO of J.P. Morgan's private bank, which manages about $650 billion in client assets. And one of the things that stood out to me on your bio is that you led the investment bank's women's network. And one of the things that I've tried to do with this show is bring more women on and it's not easy. It is very much a male-dominated industry. When I look to bring people on who are female, it's harder to find them. They're fewer and further between. Why is that? It's a good question. One of my colleagues always refers to me as the spotted owl. Uh, okay. Because, but but I actually think at J.P. Morgan we have a pretty incredible group of of people. You know, I I don't I don't know that I can put pinpoint of what exactly is is the issue. Um, uh, you know, I think that we've done. I think what it takes to actually help women advance. First of all, they have to be interested, mm-hmm. and then second of all, they have to have advocates. And and we've we've done a number of different things. I have whether it's at the investment bank in the women's network or in my current business now, where I sit and talk to women. There, there are some who come into my office, and I'll talk. I'll say I want to give them a promotion or give them a bigger job, and their first response to me sometimes is, "Well, I'm not sure I'm ready for that." And you would never get that same sort of response from a guy. No, they would they would fake it they till would, they make it is the old uh, old expression, and and that's a male. Attitude. So women sometimes need a little bit of a push mm-hmm. to say, you know what, be ambitious. You can do this. You'll figure it out. I wouldn't be offering it to you if I didn't think you could do it and I couldn't help you do it. And so there's an element of that. So we previously interviewed Michelle Myers, is one of the up and coming economists, again, on, on the Bank of America mm-hmm. Merrill Lynch platform. And one of the questions, one of the comments she said that I thought was so interesting, the lack of women at the top of the industry is a challenge for the young women coming up in finance today. Do, do you agree with that? And the way she probably meant that is when you want to think about how you can do things, most people need to see somebody who's succeeded to do that. There's I don't, no I, career path that you've witnessed. Oh, you can do this and then they that, want to see and that. that's how. You're, you're still you're still basically hacking your way through the underbrush, through the wilderness. Yeah, and I, th- I think there's some truth to that. I have found, you know, when I first ran our derivatives marketing group, I remember coming in and there were very few women in the group. And a couple of them that were in the group I knew probably shouldn't be. Uh, and what I did was actually make it a conscious effort to sit down and think about who could we pull in and enlist the men, the great men that work for me. Mm-hmm. I turned to one of them, jokingly said today, you're either going to learn a lot about shoes or you're going to help me recruit some really amazing women to work with us. And he did. He said, I'm, I'm going to do that. And when I shifted to run something else, we were over 50% female. I really? found that if you got to critical mass, it took care of itself. It becomes self-sustaining at that point. And I think at JP Morgan, we've seen that a bit because if you look at our 
if you look at our organization, you have Mary Erdos, who runs asset management. Our CFO, Marianne Lake, is a rock star. Mm -hmm. Our chief marketing officer, Kristen Lemkow, is incredible. Uh, Aaron Hill runs all of the branches, our branch network. And so we have some women in really visible big jobs that I think give people that who need that there is a track to get there. And I can do it while still having kids and having a life and all the other things that are mm -hmm. important. I think that is that is helpful. There's a lot of academic research out there that says if you're an investor and you're a woman, the odds are that you're going to have a better return because you don't suffer from what we jokingly refer to as testosterone poisoning. Any truth to that in the real world? I don't know. I, I, I think I've seen that research. I think it's interesting. I can say that in general, and this is obviously a gross generalization, women tend to be calmer Mm -hmm. in their reactions to things. And I know with myself, when something's going, you know, when the market's going crazy, when we have to make a decision, I get incredibly calm mm -hmm. because that's the way I need to think and process to make that right. decision. Um, and I think that's not always the case with, with some of the male counterparts in the past. So, you know, maybe you make better decisions when you're when you're calm. Well, it certainly reflects in in, in that academic data on, on performance. Although if you read all those studies, there's always a footnote there's that says- relatively small sample set. I know. You know, you need a few thousand That's managers in order to be able to, to to draw any real conclusions. So since you've joined the industry and progressed up the ladder at JP Morgan, what has changed within the industry uh, for better? A lot has changed within the industry for better. I mean, do you mean specifically for women or just generally? Yeah, no, I mean gen generally. specifically for women. Okay. Well, I would say I would just just a general point that I think is also very positive for women. Just think about the use of technology today versus when we started. Mm -hmm. When I started and I was covering Latin America, not only did I have to finish my model, but I actually had to fax it to the client overnight. Right. And it would cut off at least 10 times. I had at least another hour or two in my schedule at the office. Faxing. To fax it. Really? And because at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, who's going to do that for you? When you think about what BlackBerry did for us and now iPhones, where I can be anywhere and right. responding to what I need, I think it gave people a lot more flexibility. And I think that along with some of the technology, just even the way those companies have operated has even made our industry much more fluid. I mean, we're on the radio, but you see, I'm in a bright blue dress today with boots. When I started at J.P. Morgan in 1989, I never would have worn anything like this. Because colorful in boots, or colorful dress, you were more I was subdued in suits, and okay, suits. Um, women didn't wear pants. Really? Listen, it was I'm sort in of jeans no. You're in shoes <laughs> and a blazer. And years ago, that was unthinkable. Also, I, I, I think that's and I, and I that. and I think that's somewhat superficial, but I think it manifests itself in terms of our openness to who is in the who is in the organization, women moving along. I think that's all part of the same. There's much more opportunity to express your personality in our industry than there was when I started. You know, you mentioned technology. How much does it make a difference that so much communication is being done by email? or instant message, we're big Slack users. So who's on the other side of the communication? You may not even know their gender or their race or anything else like that. Do, does that technology change make a difference or is it it's already adopted and, and past that? I, I think it's adopted. I, I guess what I would say about technology is I love the flexibility it, it affords us. I don't love that so much is done on chat and on email, honestly, because I do think, and you, you, I'm sure you've seen this, somebody can misinterpret an email that you Very wrote. easily. Very, Very easily. Written word to, there's also less of a self-editing process. Yes. I've worked with people in the past who I've seen send 
horrific emails that had they turned it into a formal memo, it never would have, no one would hit that send button. It'd be, there'd be a little more circumspection about it rather than blah, 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 sends. And, and that's the problem with two instant communication. Or pick up the phone and call. Mm -hmm. and, and so when I shifted, you know, everybody in our industry used Blackberries. And we were all really good with our thumbs typing with Blackberries. And we've now shifted to iPhones. There are a good group of people that still like the BlackBerry, but I made the shift to iPhones, even though I'm not very good at typing on it, because I figured shorter emails were better and I'm much more likely to just pick up the phone and call a person instead of drafting an email, because it's a little bit more of a pain for me to do it on an iPhone. I think that's a good thing. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Kelly Coffey. She is Chief Executive Officer of J.P. Morgan Private Bank, uh, part of J.P. Morgan Chase, which runs... Uh, the private bank runs over $650 billion in, in client assets. You were at J.P. Morgan during the 08-09 collapse. Yes, that had to be quite a uh, interesting couple of months. What was it like at the bank? Front row seat. Yes. It was – interesting is a good way to say it. I think it was like always – it was always uh, being tense and on and kind of ready for the next punch and where it was going to come from. I think one of my most vivid memories, uh, I have a lot of vivid memories. One of my most vivid memories is the fact that you would walk onto our trading floor on a Saturday or Sunday and it looked exactly like it did Monday through Friday. Really? Why was that? Because you don't know what was happening over the weekend. And, and, you know, I remember, you know, the the night, the, the weekend that we bought Bear Stearns, you know, mm -hmm. having that that conversation on Sunday night, like I need everybody in at 6 a.m. We're going to we ran their risk from day one. Right. I had to walk into the building and figure out who worked for me and what they were doing and make sure I was running derivatives marketing then, make sure that no trade was put on or unwound without my approval. And it was it was moving quickly. And then the weekend Lehman failed. When when that was happening, it was it was extraordinarily complex because not only, you know, we have collateral posted to one another, so you knew right. what that was, but you had to actually think about what was going to happen in the markets and how that impacted your derivatives position and therefore what trades you might have to do when the market opened and and you were just constantly running scenarios to make sure we were ready for that. It was extraordinary. It really it really was. So there's a lot of second level thinking where it's not mm -hmm. here's what's going to happen. Now, how is this going to affect other things that might be based on something else? Yeah. And at a certain point, that decision tree becomes completely unmanageable. But just for the next morning, you had to at least have a sense of what was going on. Yeah, clients were looking to us for a lot of advice on what was going on in the market. So you were really trying to take it all in. And and it really was scenario analysis. The the takeover of Bear Stearns happened fairly rapidly. And Bear wasn't in terrible um, shape. And if I recall correctly, uh, you JP Morgan was the biggest counterparty to Bear. So you really understood their book better than anybody else. Well, as well as you can from the outside, I guess. It was very quick. It was a Thursday night to Sunday night announcement. That's, um, that's a, what, a $29 billion takeover, something along those lines? Huge. And the other thing I think that was extraordinary about it, because Jamie has told the story, I know, a number of times where you know that he got that Jamie, call, um, Diamond. D Jamie Diamond, right, okay. He I know that, the name sounds He, he had that call Thursday night. It was his birthday dinner. and um, I recall hearing about that. Yep. That's exactly right. And uh, it was Alan Schwartz that called him and said, we have an issue. And he called, you know, the head of our investment bank, a couple people. People got out. Of, it was 11 o'clock. People got out of Whatever bed. Whatever they were doing. Bang. Dressed. 
back into right the, office, the office, right over to Bear Stearns to figure out. And they worked all night uh, to make sure Bear could open the next day and then through the weekend to see what we could do for longer term. It was, I think what the, I'm not sure how many other institutions, if there's any other institution could have pulled that off in terms of the amount of analysis that we had to do to be able to step in and, and run that right from Monday. I, I, I was incredibly proud of everybody. It was a tough time, but exciting in a way too. At the time, I was critical of the deal from the Fed perspective, but objectively looking at it from a corporate perspective, I thought Jamie Dimon pulled off one of the greatest acquisitions of all time, essentially with as little risk as humanly possible for that much of that size, large risky bank with the Fed backing it, backing it up and all eventually all the- Or main, so we thought. <laughs> but yeah, but when you look at all the main lane one, two, and three that yeah. were unwound, these were the derivative positions yeah. um, of, of Bear at the time, it really was fairly break-even. That that unwind wasn't, wasn't horrific. And I think people from the outside were looking at it and saying, oh my God, this is potentially- tens of billions of dollars, it was essentially flat by the time they were done. I don't know. I think I think if you go back and you factor in all the fines that we've paid as a result of that acquisition. You you trace a lot of the fines back to that acquisition. Yeah. Particularly really. in the mortgage space. Um and they were so the second they were the we second thought. largest mortgage yeah. uh, uh securitizer. It all started. Right. And interesting that nobody um, was able to do the same thing with Lehman Brothers. I know. Well yeah, that really was interesting. I, I, I didn't think at the time that they were going to let that go, but it became apparent. I remember that weekend very well, series of conference calls. You know, I think one of the things that made J.P. Morgan able to react so quickly in the crisis was the fact that we had the risk infrastructure already right. set up. You know, Jamie also likes to say you don't you don't declare war and then raise your army. You get your army first. <laughs> and so we had risk meetings that we were doing that were this regular weekly meetings all the time. And during the crisis, what we did is we were just having them maybe four or five times a day. So it was that same infrastructure, but just right. shortening so that that reporting was instantaneous up and down in terms of understanding what was going on around around the world and in the crisis. It was it was a pretty in incredible thing to say. And, and you of. ended up with a fantastic building. We did. New, that, I, our I investment bank is really nicest, happy about. Yeah, that's one of the nicest new buildings, the the Bear Stearns building. And right next door to us, right? So our right. headquarters is right there. Around the corner. You're on Park and 50th, 47th? Between 48th and 47th, and this is 47th and Vanderbilt. So right. it's, it's, it's literally, literally next around door. the corner. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Kelly Coffey. She is the CEO at J.P. Morgan Private Bank, which manages 650-plus billion dollars. Let's talk a little bit about investing today. Uh, what are some of the more common questions that the bank is hearing from investors? You know, investors are, it's a, it's a complicated world out there. Mm -hmm. You have what's going on in China, what's going on in Europe. You have negative rates in certain places. You have the elect U.S. election going on. Uh, you have... You know, the Fed having moved in December and unclear what's going to happen for the rest of the year. So they're asking all of those questions and they're asking them in terms of what does this mean for, you know, for my portfolio, what I should do. I think our job as investors, the most important thing to do is to stay invested. And if you look at if you look at the performance of clients who stay invested through market volatility, because mm -hmm. again, this is money that is for the long term, they do far better than trying to time the market to go in and out. Even just a simple, if you look at the return of the S and P over the last twenty years, called eight 
8%. So if you invested about $10,000, you'd have today you know, $48,000 at the end of last year. If you missed the top 10 days, your investment's half that amount. Nobody knows how to time that market exactly right. If you miss, if you miss the top 30 days, you're, you're negative. That's amazing. You Think know, about we, that. We've run some studies on that, and it turns out that the best 10 days are usually adjacent in time to the worst 10 days. That's exactly right. So if right. you think you're going to get out of the way, you m- perhaps you can. But then to get back in the next day when it comes snapping back, that's really People a don't fool's do it. Errand. It's, it's right. really hard. So I think what we, what we we can we try we take all of what's going on in the world and try to understand what we think it means for portfolios. I think it just proves that being diversified is the best way to invest for the long term. And and so those are those are the ty- those are the types of cl- questions we're getting. Are you are you getting similar questions today as to what you got a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, and how do those questions differ from what we might have heard in the two thousands pre crisis? I, I think if I think about today versus a year or so ago, I think the concern about a recession is higher today than it was then. So mm-hmm. more more concern about that, and then I and then obviously the the politics, the political situation. A little has more heated acute up. this year. Yeah, I think the election's coming. I think that's that's popped into so people's let, minds. So let me ask it differently because what I'm hearing from you, aside, from, uh, there are a lot of topical things, but it seems like there are oh, there's always something that clients nervously yes. ask about that your basic answer is always, hey, you need to write out the volatility for the long haul and don't worry about Last year was China, the year before. Do you, do you remember the Russian uh, invasion? Oh, no, Cyprus, what is this going to cost? It seems every year there's something horrific, every and every year goes by, and it's not the disaster people forecast. Barry, I think that's exactly right. I think what people have – there's always going to be uncertainty in the world. Mm-hmm. And if and if you try to wait until it's all certain, I don't think you'll ever get to that place. And even when it feels more certain, you're probably too late. It's probably not the best entry point anyway. Market's and pretty good at discounting these things in advance. They are, and I think you know. You say people at the equity market, oh, it's made a, it's made a big run. We do tell clients when we're getting someone invested. It depends on where they're sitting today, right? But if they're starting from zero, mm-hmm. we don't do that all in one day or a month. We we like to phase into that because I think over time that gives them the best sure. return. Um, but there's always going to be in. But but there are times where that entry point just looks particularly attractive, and they tend to be the scariest times to invest. Of course. And that's when you have to have the long term and just be able to say, you know, history's a guide. We're going to be fine through all of this. And 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 uh, it's it's one of the most important lessons in investing, I think. So let's let's take it in a different direction. What do you what do you think are some of the worst investing ideas that are out there these days? Again, I go, the worst investing idea is to not be invested. Mm-hmm. I mean that that is sort of the the base of what we're doing to be not very diversified it'd probably be the other when i would say concentrated to be to be concentrated there are times to be concentrated and there might be parts of your wealth to be concentrated in but overall to be too concentrated in in one asset class or one style Mm -hmm. i think is a mistake any thoughts on smart beta yeah i i think smart beta is interesting as a way to 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 think about how do you take advantage of some of the um the idiosyncratic parts of the indices or sort of opportunities exist because of of mispricing. Um, you know, when we look at it, when we look at a portfolio, we are looking at at it broadly. And I want there to be a part that is the most efficient way to capture beta. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's passive. 
right? A lot of times that's passive. Um, and then think about where are those parts of what you're investing in that you really need uh, differentiated advice or, or, or strong management to capture. Um, so emerging markets might be one of those where there's just a, a broader variance of right. performance. Um, certainly private equity if for that portion of your portfolio. So uh, that's the way I think about it. Do you what do you guys do in terms of alternatives for for um, clients? Because we were talking fairly long term mm -hmm. broad asset allocation investing, uh, venture capital, private equity, hedge funds. We have a very robust platform for that, and and what we and, and it all starts with our view on what's going on in the world. So it, we may say, you know, um, we we have a certain view on what's going on in real estate, and then we'll figure out what we think the best way and who the best is to invest on that. Mm -hmm. um, same thing in terms of something that might be happening in Europe that we want to take advantage of and then have the... So it is theme-based. We don't take the approach of saying you should have X percent of your portfolio in private equity, therefore let's just fill that bucket. It actually really is more of an investing view, and that that is a great vehicle to do so, particularly when you have the the time horizons that a lot of our clients have. So it's a really important part of how we invest for clients. So I've been reading how overvalued the U.S. market is for, I don't know, four or five years. Eventually, they'll get it right. But um, what do you think about current market valuations in the U.S. and Europe? And in the emerging markets. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting how people always zero in on the U.S. market. Is it overvalued? Is it undervalued? I do think it's about fairly valued right now, particularly if you look versus history. Mm -hmm. uh, but when you stop and just think about what the stock market is, it's a collection of companies that hopefully their earnings are always growing. So even a fairly valued market should appreciate over time. The, the, the stock market's been at all times highs many, many times in, throughout history right. Right, when you think about it because it's always gone up, up, up and there are moments and periods of where it comes down. So it, it really does, again, come down to your, your time horizon and your perspective. But I think the overall index level probably fairly valued, not that interesting. Uh, the parts of the market that I think are more interesting are really more sectors where we see there's an interesting trend going on or they may be at a discount to where their historical values have been. So healthcare. Mm -hmm. And technology are probably two within that that I so I think you've got to as go into interesting or inexpensive uh, as interesting and less expensive than they have been in the in in the past. What about the energy sector, which has gotten shellacked over the past couple of years? And talk about wanting to buy stuff when everybody else hates it. Yep. What do you think? What are you guys looking at that sector? Look carefully at that. I think there's a little bit more to play out there, but the entry point to that. Will, will be a bit more in the fixed income side than the equity side so, for us. You know, here we are, we're six years into a bull market. We're having a conversation about valuation and this and that. And I hear no euphoria. There's still a decent amount of skepticism out there. What What does that mean about the market and, and why we're now at, at or near all-time highs? Where is the euphoria? This, I, I think when you go back and just remember what 2008 was like, and then you think about what's happened since, it's been a slower grind in terms of what the economy's even done. Mm -hmm. And I think that weighs into people's sentiment today, right? That that was not that long ago, and, and it was so difficult that it really does weigh on people. To It stays in investors' minds quite Still a bit. Still some post-traumatic I, I think Crash that, disorder? That is that is. what we want I, I to call think it? we have a lot of clients um, and we have a lot of investors who will just hold a higher level of cash than they had in the past just because of that. Mm -hmm. And and that's fine. 
but it, it, it certainly is a conscious decision. And that's going to be a drag on their returns. That'll be a bit of drag. Yes, because, it, you know, I mean, you have, I don't know, something like $11, billion, $11 trillion that are earning nothing or negative yield in, in terms of the uh, the overall market. Just look at look at where we are. We're at zero to negative yields right mm-hmm. now. So that is a big drag. But people, that's think about it as people are, are, are concerned. It's almost like an insurance policy. I'm concerned, so I want to keep that. Um, I do think that, uh, you know, whether you're keeping too much or not is, has to be answered on an individual level. Um, but I think we talked about earlier, all of the uncertainties that we have in the world is dragging on this. And that's why it's not a euphoria. If you if you look about at the amount of liquidity that's put into the world market and the central banks around the globe, the, the Fed is the only one that's starting to say we should normalize a bit. And 25 basis points was really nothing. It really right. doesn't mean anything to anyone. Um, but just that start has spooked the market. So I think we are we're at a point where it's kind of unprecedented. And I don't think we should expect to see a euphoria like we've seen in the past because the size of what's gone on and what's gone on um, around the world is such that it, it is it is putting a bit of a dampener. We've been speaking with Kelly Coffey. She is the chief executive officer of J.P. Morgan Private Bank. If you've enjoyed this conversation, be sure and stick around for our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue chatting. You can check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast extras. I don't know why I do this every week, but I, I do. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, it was really this fun. Is really Barry. interesting. I, I enjoyed it. I, I have some of my favorite questions. I only have you for another twenty minutes or so. There's a ton of stuff that I didn't get to, and uh, I'm just going through my papers and seeing what else. <sighs> yeah, the, everything else is. Uh, Everything else is is pretty standard. So so let me just go through um, some of my usual favorite questions. Your background, did you go right from school to J.P. Morgan? You, I did. You started on this. Basically, you found your way into finance and pretty much never left. And never left. Because never went back for the MBA it, it either. It was just always so fun. Yeah, I, I because I've done a lot of different jobs within right. J.P. Morgan. And every single one of them has been fascinating, challenging, and interesting. And I've always felt like I everything that was happening in the world impacted my day, and it was interesting, which is what I ultimately That's the best wanted. part about working in finance is no two days are ever alike. That's true. If, if you are in a rut in finance, you're doing something wrong because it's always different. There's always something blowing up somewhere. Just open your eyes. That's right. Oh, Read the to- paper every morning. We're connected to everything that's going on there. I love that. And it, that – Really keeps it really keeps it interesting. So, th- this is a really naive question. What does the CEO of a private bank actually do? That's a really great question. What I'm responsible for everything that touches a client, mm-hmm. sort of the end to end business, and so so the advisors, the, the portfolios, the, the marketing, yes, every, across the board, every, across the board strategy. I have a lot of partners around the table to help me do that across products, investing. I obviously don't do that by any stretch on my own, but so there is there is a a lot of different parts of my job. I try to spend a good chunk of my time somewhere around. Uh, 30 or 40 plus percent with clients. Mm-hmm. If I could get that higher, I would. I always try as I get more efficient and, and things done. Because when I'm with clients, I'm 
I'm learning from them. I'm hearing how we're doing. I'm also seeing my team in action Mm -hmm. and spending time with them. So I find that's a really good way to touch people and to stay really attuned to what's going on. Um, I have to spend a good portion of my time. We've had a lot change over the last couple of years um, in terms of the way we have to do things. And so we have a lot to do to make sure um, our client experience is excellent. We're very efficient at doing everything. So I spend a good chunk of my time on improving the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and How many different divisions or different department chiefs are, are directly answering to you? Uh, I have about 15 direct reports. If you look at, we're organized regionally mm-hmm. around the U.S. So that is the regional sort of client-facing folk that directly right. report. And then I have the what might be a more matrix, but sort of all of the operations, technology, business, finance, et cetera, that is, that is also really much part of my table, I'd say, as, as we do that. So Product you men- folks, et cetera. You, you mentioned how things have changed over the past couple of years. Mm-hmm. How have you guys had to adapt to, well, well, here we are in the post-crisis world, we're in the post-Dodd-Frank world. Yep. How has the compliance side of this changed your, either your your daily operations or is it just another thing to deal with it's changed it's changed everything it's changed our daily the way we onboard a client a new client the way we interact with every client that when you think about doing a mortgage toward bringing a new client in we've we've had to make sure we're complying not only with pretty complex regulations but a a different standard Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of the level of questions and the level of monitoring that we have to do. So we've, we did all of that really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you ask me what the biggest, uh, I think the biggest factor for change will be going forward is similar to what it's been in the past in terms of technology, but I think at a much faster pace because we need to make sure we're interacting with our clients digitally, more efficiently. You know, their expectations of us aren't measured versus other financial institutions. They're measured versus how they how they interacting with Amazon and Google and Apple and and we need to make sure we're we're staying pace with that. You want to be a technology player, not just a finance. So let's talk yeah. a little bit about fintech. What do you guys mm-hmm. think about all the new technological innovations, whether it's the ability to analyze a portfolio and generate a risk score or the robo advisors or anything mm-hmm. along those lines? How has financial technology changed the way J.P. Morgan operates? We, 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 we are critically, we're really focused on that. It's critical. It's changed a lot of what we do. How you think about, well, first of all, not only how you interact with your clients, right? Making sure they can see our thought leadership on their phone. They can move money on their phone. Everything that everybody does with these, with these little devices they carry in their pocket, mm-hmm. it, we're, we're changing that. Um, we're, you, the bank, so let me just digress. J.P. Morgan Bank. J.P. Morgan Chase actual depository bank. Yeah. I mentioned we were talking earlier about the mobile Bloomberg app, which I think is awesome. Your mobile bank app, which I use, is great. Yep. You could you could move money around. You could pay bills. You can do different things. It's really like a full computer on your iPhone, mm-hmm. which is really impressive. And technology. we're working every single day to improve it. And so that that's one of the benefits I have when you sit at the private bank. I'm part of this huge organization that covers. You know, we interact with at least half of the consumers in the U.S. So, really, that's so massive. Everything we do, what what I do is I just take it and adapt it for certain client segments, whether it's the private bank or another part. And that's so it's changing everything we do. How I look at how I'm looking at data in terms of giving clients advice. You know, we have a big data team at J.P. Morgan that's fabulous. How we think about who our next clients should be. It's it's uh it's changing every day. Huh. 
It's um, and it's fun. Full full disclosure: we we bank with you. My wife has an account with you guys, so we run the household for that. Our corporate account is also there. We found that your you. ability to do ACHs and other things, the interface was just very ahead of everything else. We we looked at a bunch of banks, and you guys were just head and shoulders above that. Well, that is we've... not an official endorsement. I just wanted to <laughs> disclose because someone's going to say, "Hey, don't you bank with those guys?" Yeah, they're not waving my monthly fee because if of this you look interview. at everything, right? If you well, thank you for your business first of all. Um, but if you look at all the money we move. Uh, we've said this publicly. It's somewhere between five and ten trillion dollars a day that moves. A day? That's insane. Five to ten trillion dollars a day. So let's. One of the questions I asked earlier was about some of your mentors, um, but let's talk, take this uh, in general about mentors for women. But wh- who were some of your early mentors uh, in the world of finance? I've been lucky to have a lot of great mentors. Probably what I would consider one of my first mentors. It might be a strange way to call him. Was my grandfather, mm-hmm. who ran a bank in Pennsylvania. And oh, until really? he passed away at so the you're age from of 98. A, you're from a banking family. A banking family, you could say. A small uh, hometown bank, uh, the Old Forge Bank. And and he was pretty incredible. And so when I went into finance, and I and I worked for him in the summers when I was in high school and, and did a couple other things too. But, you know, it was it was a really great relationship because it's, it's someone you could – you know, you could talk to about everything, including, you know, at the time, what we thought Greenspan was going to do next on the Fed. I mean, it right. was it was a really close relationship. And I think um, that formed a lot of a lot of who I am. And then when I came into the business, I've had some pretty, you know, pretty amazing uh, people that I've worked with that have just given me good advice at different points in time. I think I think J.P. Morgan is a place where you know, it's not too often where you're you're a couple, I might have been just for the training program a month out when they tapped me on the shoulder and sent me down to Buenos Aires to work in Argentina uh, to to do a project there and then asked me to move a year or two later. And, and the you know, there's been a lot of either, you know, and it cuts across the levels. I have mentors that are more junior and more senior that mm-hmm. I look to and I learn from all the time. They tapped you right out of the training program to go to South yes, America. they did. So they obviously saw a little skill there. And, I don't know. And I think it potential. was luck. I spoke French. They sent me to Argentina. That's how much thought <laughs> went into it. But it was it was fabulous. And we went down. We were selling a comp- We were selling a uh, phone company. No, well, that we were buying the phone company in the north. But the first time I went down, we were selling a factory for a European company, and it was in the south of Argentina, a little place called Comodoro Rivadavia. And there were no women that lived in the town except for the women that served the lunch at the factory. And they didn't really live at the town. I think they they uh, live far away. And they sent me down to do due diligence on it, which was pretty funny. I got a lot of looks. You were the only woman in town. In, in the town. town. <laughs> um, what uh, investors influenced your approach to thinking about private banking? Uh, a lot of investors have influenced my approach. I, you know, all of the greats. I and I love the simplicity of Buffett. I think you know us internally have some pretty extraordinary investors. Whether you you look at some of our CIOs like Mike Semblist, who's been at J.P. Morgan a long time and just has a unique perspective on the world. Um, you know, I, we also on our platform have a number of the best managers. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the world, and we any have them names. In, anybody you want to mention? I don't think I want to mention any names, but I think that we have them. You know, we spend a lot of time with them, and when they come in and think about uh, and talk about what's going on in the world and what they do, I learn something from every single one of them. It's an incredible position to be in. How about books? What are some of your favorite 
books, and they could be fiction or nonfiction, okay. investing-related or non-investing. That's a really hard question for me because I love to read. Mm-hmm. So I could give you a super, super long list. If you think about fic- – if I starting with fiction because that's fun because I do like mostly on vacation to, to get into something that kind of takes my mind completely out of right. finance. I like books that take you to a different time period and then explore characters there. So if you think about – one of my favorite series is Ken Fall. It's a great writer and mm-hmm. – um, he wrote Pillars of the series. Earth, yep. but the you know the Winters of the World, the three, the trilogy that goes from World War One through World War Two, mm-hmm. that's that's a, a favorite of mine. Um, and you know I love Henry James' Portrait of a Lady. That's again that period that kind of takes you back, really interesting characters. And then I and then I like to read about uh, a lot of business books, business or in, investing books. So there's a great book by Larry Bossidy that's called Execution: Getting It Done. Mm-hmm. I think you know a lot of what I have to do in my business is execute. And, uh, you know, even a, a great strategy, poorly executed, doesn't do anything. Um, I, I like Steven Pinker. I like Malcolm Gladwell. I like Adam Grant. So those are the types of things that I that I tend to read. I have Pinker and Grant both queued up in the coming months. I'm excited. I, I just started Originals. I don't know if you've yeah, read that Yeah, I'm by just Grant. starting that one. That's just me. And um, Pinker has so many great books. He does. I don't even know where to begin. Exactly. Um, but he's really a, a deep thinker and really an interesting, interesting guy. Any finance books of mention of note that you want to mention? Um, House of Morgan. Okay, that's about the history William of J.P. Co- Morgan. Who wrote that? Bill, uh, Bill Cohen, right? No, Bill Cohen didn't write that. He wrote a new. It was um, I can't remember who the author was. But, I can't remember right now because it's it stops probably in ninety eight or two. It gets, it's actually it actually ends quite a while ago. Bill wrote a newer one, mm-hmm. and I, I actually I, I read some of his. I think they're good. The um, uh, my head of research just read the one of the more recent biographies of, of James Pier uh, what is his name Pierpont Morgan yeah. J P Morgan the actual man and said it was utterly riveting and he couldn't put it down. He just I love biographies. Steve Jobs his biography was was pretty incredible. Yeah, and the Kate um, Graham there's a great one about her Washington Post. Oh really? That's a really good one. The I Wright Brothers one everybody has been raving about. Yes. It's on my bookshelf I haven't gotten. I to think yet. they're making that into a movie too. Oh really? I thought I heard that. Everything he's Not written. Not sure. The author of that book yeah. who escapes me at the moment. Who's um, the author that wrote I can't believe I'm forgetting his name right now Barbarians of the Gate. Uh, give me a minute. It'll and he wrote the uh, fastball. He's a really. I, I do read a lot of his too, which well, are Barry mostly. at the gate. It'll it'll come to me. Give me a minute. That that's the problem with uh, getting older. These <laughs> names just gone. I used to have these at the. But tip I can of my go tongue. on and on and on. I get out my little Kindle app on my iPhone, and it it just I'm constantly putting books on there that people recommend to me. You know, we have a, a summer reading list and a winter reading list, so we're now preparing for our summer reading list, which is not out yet. Uh, I put one out of. This is what I hope to read this summer. <laughs> and then we see how many I, I actually get through that. That's right. Um, there's there's, there's a, so many fascinating books. McCullough is the guy who wrote oh, he's, The yes. Wright Brothers and everything he's written, including, was it Hamilton? He may have written the Hamilton book that became the basis but, of the play, um, which, which is, is now on fantastic. fire. Yeah. Hamilton is incredible. All right. So we talked about the changes since you've joined the industry let's talk about the next shifts you mentioned technology yes what are some of the other major shifts that are coming to finance well I, I I think technology you mentioned fintech I think that is the absolute biggest biggest change because you have a lot of different companies that come into the space that are all 
doing the same thing in, in a way. They're all trying to solve a problem that you know, finance is the financial industry is incredibly complex. We're regulated in a complex way. What we do is somewhat complex. And they're really good at figuring out what's that pain point and how do you solve it? You know, how do you make a mortgage process easier so you know what's what's you know going what, where you are in that process? One of the hot, most highly regulated processes um, in in the world, I believe. And and so I think that's going to change the way we even we way we interact with our clients and the way we serve our clients and the way we think about it. And it's changing, like I said before, everything we do, a lot of the analyses we're doing inside to make, you know, I think we, we just need to have use technology to interpret data better mm-hmm. so that we're spending our time. And when I say we, I mean uh, a banker or a, someone who's who's talking to a client on interpreting and advising them, but making people smarter through their use of technology. And and I think that's going to be um, probably the biggest change to our industry. And we're working on it every day. So my, we're down to our last two questions because I know they're coming to drag you away shortly. Um, so what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or a recent college grad who came to you and said, I'm thinking about going into finance? What would you tell them? I would say take a chance and go for it. Make mm-hmm. sure you love it. I think one of the things that's happened in our industry that's been good is, you know, through the crisis, there was a fair shakeout. And I think there was a time when everybody gravitated toward finance because it was a thing to do. It was a way to make a lot of money. Make if you're in it for quickly, the money, easily. I, I think that cohort has been sort of I selected been, out. I think it's selected out. It's Which isn't a bad thing. rising tide lifts all ship. I think it's a great thing. Um, and I think it's better for those individuals. So they didn't love what they were doing. Those are the people, you know, if you're miserable doing this, that's kind of crazy because there's so much right. exciting things, so many exciting things going on. And so I think we cleared that out. And so I, I, I would say make sure you love it um, and take some chances. I do find sometimes that our, our younger uh, em- employees or younger members of our team tend to be very, um, a little bit risk averse. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're purposeful. So they're moving toward a purpose, maybe, maybe more strongly than certainly I was, right. you know, I came in not intending to stay in the industry. I, I looked to the next thing to make sure I would be learning, having fun, you know, working with people I liked. I didn't necessarily say I wanted to be the head of the private bank or I wanted to be this. They're more pers- purposeful, which is good, but I think it makes them a little bit uh, less willing to jump and move to Argentina, right? For example, or gives or, you the ability to pivot towards an opportunity that comes along, as opposed to just being on the straight and narrow. Yeah, don't don't have blinders on. I think that's really important. I think it's important to choose to work with someone you think you'll they'll learn from. Who you work for is so important. It might even be more important than what you do. One of the most surprising things Arthur Levitt had said when we had him on the show. Was don't be afraid to pick up and move to a new city and say I'm gonna I'm gonna try yes. Chicago or New Orleans or or Cleveland for a year or two just to get that sort of experience and if I come back to wherever New York San Francisco wherever hey at least I've experienced something else and I have a frame of reference or to, go abroad uh, I have this you know why I think I mean I had studied abroad in in college but. Moving abroad early in my career was one of the best things I did. It's it's eye opening, and you know I, I sometimes will have conversations with people where they don't they don't want to move cross country or they don't want to move you know. You like get a said, job in Chicago. Hong Kong in a heartbeat. I could give people Hong Kong, London. Just take advantage of it. I mean, the world is an incredible place, and um, I, I that's my advice would be to be open minded and and to take some risks and make sure they're doing something they love. Take risks, do something you love. All right, let me 
Let me see if I can remember that. <laughs> and our last question, and I'm going to change the date on this a little bit. What is it that you know about banking and investing and running a company that you wish you knew 20 plus years ago? You know, when people always ask me, what would you go back and do differently? That's that type of question. Mm -hmm. I always say nothing because I'm afraid that I wouldn't get to where I am now. The, the path is what leads you to, to what you know. I worry. But all that said. But that aside. What do you wish you, Not I'm not asking you what you would have done differently. What did what do you I wish, wish there's, you there's, knew way back when that a, you know today you didn't know then? They, I wish I knew how successful Amazon would be and Apple would be. <laughs> Well, I don't mean, I don't mean, you know, from the, an investing. the, the but, SEC has a temporal department that prevents people from going back in time. Right. I'm not allowed to do that. The, so you can't, you can't use that. I, but, I, but just as a, like, I think back when I was younger and I'm like, oh, what an idiot I was. Yeah. If only I had at least a little more awareness of the world around yes. me. So that's my, conf I wish I knew that it was actually yeah. a full planet and it wasn't just yes. revolving around me. Yes. But career wise... I understand exactly what you're saying in terms of you don't want to change the path. But I would love to know a lot of the things I know today in terms of, uh, you know, making sure I think there were times in particularly in, in my career, and particularly when I was doing M&A, where I buried myself in my mm -hmm. work. Um, and as you know, as my husband likes to remind me, you, you thought it was the coolest thing in the world. You never would have wanted to be somewhere else on a Friday night or a Saturday night. Right. But I do think uh, sitting back and saying there, you could have backed off a little bit and done some more really interesting things. Mm -hmm. And you didn't need to be so focused on one part of your life, probably for as long as I would have been. Myopic. Is that, yeah, is that the right word? I tend to get that way when I'm focused on something. Hyper-focused. I'm, I'm hyper-focused on it. And mm -hmm. that, that can be a benefit. But, you know, I think your biggest strength is usually your biggest weakness. Your biggest strength is... Okay. Sure, it, there's a blind side far. there. And right, if it goes too far. The tendency to, to take it to, to a place that's one notch yeah. beyond where it should have gone. Sure. So watch it a little. Kelly, thank you so much. This has been Barry, this absolutely fascinating. We have been speaking with Kelly Coffey. She is the CEO of J.P. Morgan Private Bank. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see the other 90 or so of these podcasts that we've done. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my Booker and producer, Taylor Riggs, our chief engineer, Charlie Vomer. Today's sound engineer is Jeannie, is that right? And my head of research is Michael Batnick, who helps prepare all the questions for this. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than a destination. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all. All of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a Stiefel Financial Advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE.